Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. This is Frank. I'm the host of the show, and I'm happy you can join me today. If you've listened to previous episodes, thank you for coming back. If this is the first time you're listening, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show and continue to be a listener. This podcast discusses three specific topics, movies, sports, and politics. Each episode will be dedicated to one of these topics. Today's show will center on politics. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox under Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. Please subscribe to the show on any one of these podcast apps so you can receive new episodes directly to your device when they become available. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. This is a very important and simple way you can help the show reach a wider audience. You can always get episodes of the show from our website, www.letmebendyourear.com. Now, in the previous episode, if you listened to it, I discussed how I have not been able really to get into politics since I've relaunched the podcast. It's something that I really want to do. So we're going to dive into it full bore today. My original plan was to discuss the Supreme Court nominees, uh, specifically Merrick Garland, who was nominated late in Obama's term, and now Brett Kavanaugh, who has been nominated within the last 30 days by President Trump. I am still going to discuss that, but I actually am going to talk about something else after that as well, as it regards to President Trump pulling former CIA Director John Brennan's security clearance, because I have a definite opinion on that as it relates to the subject of today's show, which is polarization. So as I stated briefly in the last episode, I'm going to kind of regroup and talk about that again. So basically, this podcast is going to discuss politics, but I want to be clear about my views on politics as it relates to this podcast. And it's something that I will be repeating because unfortunately, in the polarized times that we live in, it's a necessary thing that I'm going to have to do. So the two things that I'm going to discuss through the life of this podcast, uh, two main things is going to be polarization and engagement. Today's show is really going to center around polarization. I will definitely do dedicated episodes where I'll give my opinions on how voter engagement is also crucial uh, to our democracy. But in the area of polarization, these two topics I'm going to talk about today are directly affected, adversely affected by polarization. So as I stated in a tweet on my Twitter account, polarization, in my opinion, is rotting our democracy. And I choose the word rotting very specifically and very intentionally because I think that's the effect that it's having. It's rotting from the inside out and poisoning our precious democracy. And I don't think I'm overstating that whatsoever. So let's get right into it. Towards the end of Obama's term, so the last year he was in office in the full swing of the presidential campaign, he nominated Merritt Garland to replace Scalia on the Supreme Court. So Antonin Scalia, well-known conservative justice, had passed away, and Obama nominated Merrick Garland. I'm going to play a clip of President Obama introducing Merrick Garland when he announced his nomination. Uh, so we're going to listen to that, and then I'll comment. After completing this exhaustive process, I've made my decision. I've selected a nominee who is widely recognized not only as one of America's sharpest legal minds, but someone who brings to his work a spirit of decency, modesty, integrity, even-handedness, and excellence. These qualities and his long commitment to public service 
have earned him the respect and admiration of leaders from both sides of the aisle. He will ultimately bring that same character to bear on the Supreme Court, an institution in which he is uniquely prepared to serve immediately. Today I am nominating Chief Judge Merrick Brian Garland to join the Supreme Court. All right, so you heard on the day President Obama announced his nominee for the Supreme Court, Chief Judge Merrick Garland. Now, if you listen to his remarks, brief as they were, there were very specific key words that I want you to pay attention to because when I play Trump a little bit later, as he announces his nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, you're going to see a theme. President Obama went out of his way to say the term even-handedness, fair, talked about public service, also made it a point to indicate that he is respected by people from both sides of the aisle. So why do you think President Obama would care about that? He can pick whoever he wants. Uh, it's his prerogative as president of the Constitution to nominate someone from the Supreme Court. Why would he use those specific words? Well, that's where polarization comes in. He knows, just as any president knows, that the minute you pick a nominee for the Supreme Court, the other side, unfortunately, is going to demonize the nomination. I can't really recall the last time either a Democratic or Republican president nominated someone for the Supreme Court where the other side didn't immediately demonize a judge coming in. So, as you can see, and I'm going to play Mitch McConnell uh, next commenting on Merrick Garland. So let's take a listen to that and then we'll talk about it. This nomination ought to be made by the president we're in the process of electing this year. And you are convinced, briefly, you are convinced that your Republican senators who are in tough races in November won't pay a political price for it, regardless of the history? There's a lot of interest on both sides of this issue. Uh, the right of center world does not want this vacancy filled by this president. And even though, if you want to discuss the nominee just for a minute, even though Barack Obama calls him a moderate, he's opposed by the NRA. He's opposed by the National Federation of Independent Business, which had never taken a position on a Supreme Court nominee before. The New York Times said it would move the court dramatically to the left. But this is not about this particular judge. This is about who should make the appointment. We're in the process of picking a president, and that new president ought to make this appointment, which will affect the Supreme Court maybe for the next quarter of a century. Speaking of a new president, if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders were to win the presidency, is there any chance that Republicans would vote to confirm Merrick Garland during a lame duck session of Congress? I can't imagine that a Republican majority Congress in a lame duck session after the American people have spoken would want to confirm a nominee opposed by the NRA, the NFIB, and the New York Times says would move the court dramatically to and the left. Senator, just this, to this nomination ought to be made by the next president. So just to, just to put a button on this, are you ruling it out 100 percent? Yes. So you listen to Mitch McConnell, and he basically, in no uncertain terms, said that the next president should pick a nominee for the Supreme Court. And he cites precedent as his reason and goes so far as to say, and I'll play another clip of him in a moment, to say that if it were the other way around, which is the classic um, childish review of both parties as it relates to polarization, well, he did it so I can do it. So, of course, he makes a point to say if it was the other party, they would be doing the same thing I'm doing. 
Um, there's precedence in a lame duck year for a president that you wait for the next president to come in to pick a nominee. I have some very definitive thoughts on that. Last time I checked, a presidential term is four years. I think, uh, think that hasn't changed. I think it's been that way since the beginning of our country. So I don't understand why Obama was still president. He still had a year left, maybe a little less than a year. Why he wouldn't be able to pick his nominee. And he did pick his nominee, so obviously he was able to do that. Mitch McConnell basically, and the Republicans at the time, basically refused to listen or even consider meeting Merrick Garland. So I'm going to get into that a little bit further. I'm going to play the second clip of Mitch McConnell uh, going a little more in depth about his thoughts about the nomination even happening and also his thoughts on Merrick Garland as a judge. What about the Supreme Court nominee that President Obama has put out? Well, if you look at the history of vacancies created in a presidential year, they don't get filled. Right. But what about him? As a what about him? Yeah. I mean, well, isn't he playing the, the long is, game? Is he, is no. The issue is who should make the appointment. We're in the middle of a presidential election. You'd have to go back 80 years to find the last time a vacancy created in a presidential election year was confirmed. You'd have to go back to Grover, Cleveland in 1888 to find the last time a vacancy created in a presidential year was confirmed by Senate of the okay. opposite party. Now look, let me finish. You know that if the shoe were on the other foot, and this was a president of a Republican, of a Republican president making a nominee to a Democratic Senate, they wouldn't be confirmed in the middle of an election. Well, Chuck Schumer said as much, though. Yeah, back in Schumer said it, Biden said it, Biden. Reid said it. So look, I mean, the point is, this is not an issue upon which the Senate has to ask permission from the president. We both have constitutional responsibilities. He gets to make a selection, and we get to decide. Barack Obama calling somebody a moderate doesn't make him a moderate. There's nothing moderate about Merrick Garland, and either he or somebody just like him will be nominated if Hillary Clinton wins the election. I was going to say, if Hillary Clinton wins the election, then do Republicans rush to try to get him because Hillary's selection could be worse? I don't think you could have a worse. From a, from a conservative point of view, I don't think you could have a worse nominee than Merrick Garland. Why is that? There's nothing about him that is moderate. Barack Obama calling somebody a moderate doesn't make him moderate. He called Kagan a moderate. He called Sotomayor a moderate. People still call Ginsburg and Breyer moderates. Uh, <laughs> they're not. All right, so that was more from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Merrick Garland. So two things you can get from that. One, again, he cites 80 years of precedent going back to Grover Cleveland before you can find a Supreme Court nominee that was confirmed in a lame duck year of a president, an outgoing president. And then the second thing is, of course, which is very predictable, he thinks Merrick Garland is the most liberal judge to ever be nominated to the bench. And again, this is where the insidiousness of polarization comes to a head. Is Merrick Garland left of center? Maybe. I remember at the time of the nomination, uh, people both Republican and Democrat, had a lot of respect for this judge. And let me go by saying any judge that's nominated by any president is going to be a highly respected jurist that I would imagine people of both political persuasions would respect. Unless some out-of-the-way loon nominee comes into the fore, any nomination by either a Democrat or Republican to the Supreme Court is going to be taken with a lot of seriousness. And as you heard President Obama say in his announcement of Merrick Garland, 
they're already vetting these people with the idea of getting them confirmed. So either way, either president, regardless of what the makeup of the Congress would be, is not going to try to get a nominee that has no chance of being confirmed. So they're already coming in trying to be conciliatory in the sense that they want their nominees confirmed. Merrick Garland, by all intents and purposes, was a good choice, a safe choice, for lack of a better term. I don't even know if you really want a safe choice, but a safe choice. So here's the issue. I don't have an issue with Mitch McConnell. A lot of hyperbole when it comes to these judges on both sides. Here is my problem. And this is what really angers me, and I think angered a lot of people at the time. They wouldn't even meet with the man. So they wouldn't even meet with the man to give him the courtesy of listening to him one-on-one or his views. And then secondly, refused to hold hearings. So here's my thing. If you think Merrick Garland is not suitable for the Supreme Court, you have the hearings. You have the hearings. You ask your questions. They can be rigorously tough. You can challenge him on things that you're questionable on. And then you put it to a vote. Why wouldn't you do that? Because guess what would have happened had you had done that? He would have either been confirmed or not. And if you felt you had the votes, he wouldn't have been confirmed anyway. So then Obama probably would have nominated someone else. So the process would start all over again. We all know what you wanted to do, GOP, Mitch McConnell. We all know what you wanted to do. This wasn't about Merrick Garland. You even admitted it. You wanted to wait until the next presidential election, hoping that Trump would win to pick the next president. You wanted to block President Obama from nominating someone who would possibly get on the Supreme Court because I fully believe had there been hearings for this nominee, this nominee would have been confirmed. Obviously, he had to go through confirmation hearings to the to the role he was in now, so he probably, in all likelihood, despite what Mitch McConnell always said, would have been confirmed because if Mitch McConnell was confident that there was no way that Merrick Garland was going to be confirmed, then hold the hearings. Hold the hearings, put his feet to the fire, ask him the tough questions, and if you would have thought you had the votes, then you would have totally had the hearings. But you didn't because I fully believe and the GOP fully believed that he probably would have been confirmed. So then Obama would have gotten his pick in there and the GOP didn't want that. So... They succeed, they stall, the presidential election goes through, and of course we all know that Donald Trump ends up becoming the next president of the United States with a Supreme Court vacancy to fill, which he does essentially with Neil Gorsuch. Now that confirmation, I'm not going to really get into that one too much because that one actually had some static on it, but I think uh, was uh, relatively simple in terms of getting someone on the court. Um, I'm sure the critics were there. But again, so we start with a sitting president who was still president being blocked by some silly excuse of, well, we don't really do that. And the Democrats agree with me and they would have done the same thing had it been the other way around. Nonsense. When, just be honest, just say, we wanted to block President Obama for making a nomination, and we wanted it to hopefully be the Republican president that does that. That's, I mean, call it what it is. I mean, at least be honest. But of course, you don't get that. You get this for the good of the country, and 
the people should decide because they're picking the president, all this kind of nonsense. And as you're going to see as I speak about polarization, it's great for the goose but never for the gander. They always will say they're doing something for the good of the country and then when it's flipped around on them by the other party doing the exact same thing, then all of a sudden it's evil, the other party's evil, and the demonization continues. So cut to President Trump becoming president. He's got a second seat in the to fill now because, which came as a surprise to a lot of people, Justice Kennedy decided to retire. I think this came as a shock to a lot of people. And uh, of course now, President Trump has got to find a nominee. So again, if you remember, he had a list that he had um, curated in the presidential election when he was running of judges he would pick from, a pool of judges he would pick from uh, to be on the Supreme Court if he were elected. So he ultimately decides on Brett Kavanaugh. There's some disagreement among his inner circle about who he should nominate, but he ends up settling on Brett Kavanaugh. So I'm going to play a quick clip of President Trump announcing Kavanaugh's nomination. Judge Kavanaugh has impeccable credentials, unsurpassed qualifications, and a proven commitment to equal justice under the law. A graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School, Judge Kavanaugh currently teaches at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. Throughout legal circles, he is considered a judge's judge, a true thought leader among his peers. He is a brilliant jurist with a clear and effective writing style, universally regarded as one of the finest and sharpest legal minds of our time. And just like Justice Gorsuch, he excelled as a clerk for Justice Kennedy. That's great. Thank you. Judge Kavanaugh has devoted his life to public service. For the last 12 years, he has served as a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals with great distinction, authoring over 300 opinions which have been widely admired for their skill, insight, and rigorous adherence to the law. Among those opinions are more than a dozen that the Supreme Court has adopted as the law of the land. I want to thank the senators on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, for their consultation and advice during the selection process. This incredibly qualified nominee deserves a swift confirmation and robust bipartisan support. All right, so listening to President Trump describe Brett Kavanaugh, if you notice some key words that you hear in both President Trump and President Obama's descriptions of their nominees, first couple of ones that came to my mind were public servant. Again, any judge that rises to this level where they're being considered to the Supreme Court are many things. Usually educated in the finest law schools in the country or in the world, whether it's Harvard, Yale Law School, Georgetown University, Oxford in England. When, you're, when you reach this level as a judge, you're a highly educated scholar of the law, no matter if a Democrat or Republican nominates you. Now, in a perfect world, you want a perfectly balanced judge that looks at each case on the merits and uses the Constitution as a guide. But obviously, judges are human beings. And I think in a perfect world, you'd want a judge that has a centrist opinion, That's but they're like any other human being, they're going to lean one way or the other, maybe a little bit to the right, maybe a little bit to the left, or maybe issue to issue. They may be like people are. Maybe they're socially liberal and 
fiscally conservative or vice versa is always going to be uh, a mix of philosophies, which I think is what creates a well-rounded individual and what also creates a well-rounded judge. Obviously, they have the additional burden of of working that within the law, within precedents, uh, sticking to precedents that have come before it, as opposed to setting precedent, which is, I know a lot of conservatives are afraid of when Democratic presidents nominate judges. But again, when you reach this level to be even considered for the Supreme Court, you're probably one hell of a judge, regardless of what your decisions have been. So President Trump uses words like public service, bipartisan support, people on both sides of the aisle respected him as a judge. And President Trump in the clip that I just played you even goes so far as to say is to thank Republican and Democratic senators for their consultation on this nominee. So as I said, I think no matter who the president is, Democrat, Republican, whoever it is, they've already vetted these people with the intention of having these people confirmed. They're not looking to find some radical judge on the left or the right because they know that they will never get confirmed. That would make no sense at all. So, of course, just like when you heard with Merrick Garland, Mitch McConnell's comments, these judges who are human beings with differing opinions and even differing legal opinions that take this very seriously and have done it usually their entire adult professional lives in the legal profession, immediately demonized by the other side. I'm going to play some comments uh, from the Democrats after Trump announced Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. Take a listen. Now, last night, President Trump took a step that millions of Americans feared he would take and nominated to the Supreme Court someone who would fill his campaign promise to overturn Roe and declare health care for Americans unconstitutional. Listen, if you are a young woman in America or you care about a young woman in America, pay close attention to this nomination. Pay close attention. Because Kavanaugh has made his purpose clear. He told us that when he was on that list of 25, he has told us that in every decision that he has made on the issue of choice. And let's be clear about what this is about. It's about government taking on the decision about a woman and what she does with her body instead of giving that woman and her family and her God the power to make the decision for herself. Judge Kavanaugh. You don't belong in this building as a justice. Judge Kavanaugh, you should not be serving in this building as a Supreme Court justice because you have demonstrated an extraordinary hostility to the rights and liberties precious in this country that make this nation great. I'm a no on this nominee. He would be among the most conservative justices in Supreme Court history. His views are outside the mainstream, and there's every reason to believe he would overturn Roe. While overturning Roe would set back women's freedoms and limit access to comprehensive health care, the reality is it will impact all Americans because we all have a stake in whether constitutional principles are observed. All right, so that's Democrats, starting with Chuck Schumer and uh, several other representatives and senators, obviously displeased with President Trump's nomination.
So here's the thing. I have no issue with them being displeased with the nomination. Totally fine with that. My problem with both Democrats and Republicans is their outrage is disingenuous. Or even if it's not disingenuous, listening to the comments there, and this is kind of a thing that makes me laugh but with politicians in general. If you ever watch a t any TV show, especially reality TV, which I watch some of it, they always, each current season of the whatever show it is you watch, if you notice, what do they always say? They always say, this is the most exciting, the craziest, the most ridiculous season of fill-in-the-blank or whatever show you watch. That's what they always do every year. It's, this is, the, this is the, the, the worst, the best. Or if you watch like a competition show like American Idol or, or any show with our talent competition, what do they always say? This year on the show, this is the best talent we've ever had. And then the next year they go, same thing. This year, this is the best talent we ever had. The talent gets getting better. And when you get to these, these, these senators and, and congressmen talking about a nominee from the opposite party, they always say the same thing. P pick and choose. We'll start, you know, Democrat says, Brett Kavanaugh would be the most conservative justice ever in the history of the, of the world nominated. And if he's on the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade is gone. Life as we know it will come to an end. And the Democrats do the same thing. Or excuse me, the Republicans do the same thing. Mitch McConnell on, on Merrick Garland. He would be the most liberal judge in the history of liberal judges, and and the world would go to hell in a handbasket, and he would move the court to the left, and and government would control everything, and big government would just get bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and all the hyperbole is an overdrive with the Supreme Court. Again, I have no issue with vetting nominees through the confirmation process. That's one of the beauties of our Constitution. President picks the nominee, Senate confirms. That's a beautiful thing. I have no issue with that. I have no issue with the nominee going through tough, tough questioning. They're about to be appointed to a lifetime position. I have no problem with that. But the Republicans, what do they do? They don't even have confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland. That's a travesty to me. You have the hearings, confirm them or decline them. You just don't not do it so you can stall because you're hoping a Republican president gets in. That's nonsense. President Obama is president for four years. Donald Trump is president for four years. There's a four-year term. From the day he gets in to the day he gets out, he should be able to do whatever it is he needs to do within the constitutional powers, including nominating a Supreme Court nominee. And I don't care if it's the last year of someone's term. I don't care. Because this is what happens. Because you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a Republican president. Hell, it might even be Donald Trump. Whether he's a one- or two-term president, there's going to be a situation where late in his term, the last year he's in office, or in the middle of a presidential campaign, just like what happened to Obama, there's going to be an unexpected vacancy in the Supreme Court, possibly. These other justices are not getting any younger. So there's probably going to be some more retirements in the next probably five to ten years. And it might happen on the last year of Trump's presidency. So what's going to happen? We're going to get the same nonsense from the Democrats. They're going to, Trump's going to nominate someone, and the Democrats are going to say, well, Mitch McConnell blocked President Obama from Merrick Garland. We're going to do the same thing, and they're going to cite the same precedents. And it's, they're going to be just as wrong as the Republicans. Let me play one final audio clip. This is Senator Corrin from Texas discussing the nomination process for Kavanaugh. On Judge Kavanaugh, 
we have been discussing among the Judiciary Committee members the schedule, and we feel strongly that Judge Kavanaugh's hearing needs to occur at such a time that will allow him to assume the bench at the beginning of the October term of the Supreme Court, uh, the first Monday in October, which means that um, if you look at what Judge Gorsuch's hearing schedule was, roughly 66 days from nomination to confirmation, uh, that took him roughly, that would take you roughly into the middle of September. But um, we've already begun to hear, hear rumblings from our Democratic colleagues that they're going to want to see every scrap of paper uh, that ever uh, that ever came across um, Brett Kavanaugh's desk. And uh, my suggestion would be they focus on his 12 years on the uh, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And um, in 2006, when he was confirmed to the to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the second highest federal court in the nation, uh, they'd made no requests for the records that came across his desk when he served as st staff secretary at the, uh, at the Bush White House, basically managing the paper flow uh, for the administration. So expect to see uh, a lot of requests for documents, expect to see requests for delays, uh, but we're determined to make sure that uh, supporting Chairman Grassley, this is a fair and uh, full uh, hearing. Uh, but we're not going to uh, sit idly by and allow our Democratic colleagues to draw this out by making unreasonable document, document demands, which would delay this uh, hearing until uh, well past the election. So, as you heard Senator Corrin discuss, he wanted a swift confirmation process. He noted the time of 66 days, comparing it to Gorsuch, then proceeds to take a shot at the Democrats predictably so, basically saying that the Democrats, and if you look at the news, you'll see um, clips of, of, of Chuck Schumer and other Democratic senators basically saying what uh, Corrin was, was alluding to, that they want to see every decision, every, every piece of paper on any legal opinion that he's ever written. So Corrin's assertion is that's above and beyond. And of course, if you heard in the clip there, he said that he has plenty of, of history as a jurist and you could look at anything from his confirmation hearings and that should be sufficient. But again, here's my point. That's not really my point. The bigger point and why I wanted to play that clip is what are the Democrats intending on doing? They're going to try to stall the nomination. And their way of stalling, like the Republicans did for Merrick Garland, is to have a super intensive investigation which pushes back the hearing and makes the hearing go longer. And while their goal is a little bit different, obviously there's not a presidential election this year, obviously we're bumping up on the midterm elections. So I think that the Democrat strategy here is to is to delay this nomination into November and get that groundswell of support to block this nominee. And to what end, I'm not sure. Because of course, again, if you are successful in not getting Kavanaugh confirmed, then Trump's going to pick another nominee of the same ilk. So I don't know what purpose you derive from doing that. Not to say that you don't challenge it if you truly believe it. And that's the issue. The, the outrage for candidates nominated by the opposite president a lot of times comes off as very disingenuous. And I'm not saying every single senator is disingenuous or doesn't have a pure motive, but unfortunately their track record doesn't really buy them much credibility with the public. So again, Polarization 
is rotting our democracy. I'm going to continue to say it. Now, with the Supreme Court, the ultimate non-political role in our government, the judicial branch, which should have no connection to the legislative branch or to the executive branch, other than through balance of powers um, to keep uh, keep things balanced. So obviously they're entwined because the president picks the nominee, Senate confirms. But what should be happening and what used to happen is the president should nominate who he thinks is the most qualified candidate for the Supreme Court. And then there should be a healthy debate in the Senate about this candidate's qualifications, his history of decisions, which is all completely and totally valid. And I have no issue with that. But the second someone is nominated, the default position of the other party is to demonize the nominee. And this started, uh, I can only go with the reference to my, the time I've watched politics. This goes all the way back to Judge Bork, who was nominated by Reagan. And speaking of the late Justice Kennedy, he ended up being the nominee that was confirmed um, when Bork was was removed. So this has been going on since the late 80s. You demonize the nominee. So you're demonizing a judge that has probably been a judge from anywhere from 25 to 30 years. Intelligent, high level, knows the law, and you're immediately, as you heard the clips that I played, whether it's a, a Republican calling a Democratic nominee, the most liberal judge will swing the judge to the left, and it's you know not good for the country, to what you just heard with the Democrats saying about Kavanaugh, basically He's not with, I think it was Rosenthal said he was not fit to walk into the building. That's a little ridiculous. Like, I mean, to say the man's not fit to, to get into the building, that, that implies to me that he's either a criminal or his decisions have been so outrageous that he doesn't deserve to be on the Supreme Court. And I don't think either of those is true. So you have two men who are, eminently qualified for the Supreme Court. Garland, who never even got a chance to try, and we'll see what happens with Brett Kavanaugh. I think he probably will ultimately be confirmed, but who knows? I'm not, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if something torpedoes that nomination as well, but it's not being torpedoed for the right reasons and the way it should be. Merrick Garland should have had his day in front of the Senate to speak his mind, to speak his piece about what he would do as a justice, and then the Senate could have had a vote up or down. That's the process. And when you subvert the process, you subvert democracy. And I know McConnell said in his thing, we have the right to do that. We get to decide if we hear it or not. Yeah, that's fine. But that's not why you did it. That's not why you did it. You didn't do it over some great cause or some great conviction of following certain... No, you didn't. You did it because you did not want President Obama to slip in another nomination before, or another justice before he left office. And Democrats, you're just as guilty too. What are you gonna do with Brett Kavanaugh? It looks like you're gonna do a micro investigation of him, more so than you would do other nominees. Why? Not because of some deep-seated, noble cause to protect the country from the most conservative justice in the history of justices, which we all know, they'll say that until the next person is nominated by Trump or any other conservative president. No, you're doing it because you want to stall this nomination 
until the midterms happen. Just say just say it. And in both instances, both parties are absolutely 100% wrong. And these are the things that polarization does. These are the things that are adversely affected by polarization because basically these politicians know that their default position has to be the other party's nominee is unacceptable. Not even, oh, there's some things I disagree with. Uh, this decision was good. Not too fond of that decision. There's no nuance. There's no context. So Merrick Garland is the most liberal. Brett Kavanaugh is the most conservative. And there's no discussion in between those two extremes. And it's poisonous to our democracy. Now, as I stated earlier in the show, I was going to end on just discussing that. But in the news this past couple of days, uh, something significant pretty happened or happened in the intelligence community. So President Trump revoked the security clearance for former CIA director John Brennan, who was director of CIA under Barack Obama. So if you followed Brennan post-CIA, he has been extremely, extremely critical of President Trump. Um, you know, to the point where it's, it's, he's basically, he's, he's spoken his mind. He hasn't held back, um, used some very strong language when it comes to the president. So in case you don't know, it's common practice and protocol for intelligence, people in the intelligence community, especially higher level up director, assistant director, DNI, which is director of national intelligence to uh, retain a security clearance even when their term is over and even if they're in private life and not in the government at all. And the reason is completely logical. You want these people as a resource, and it's a very common protocol for the current either DNI or CIA director, FBI director, you know, pick your head of anywhere that works in either domestic intelligence or foreign intelligence to reach out to the former people that were in those roles to get their opinions on things, state of affairs in the world, how they handle certain situations that come up, they become a valuable resource for any current director, assistant director, DNI, that's um, in the role now. So it's customary, um, you know, obviously, assuming all other protocols are followed, to have these people have security clearance. President Trump revoked Brennan's security clearance this week, and there was a large outcry from the intelligence community. And here's why I'm making note of this. Again, I think it's safe to say, and I think even the most ardent Trump supporters would agree with me, that President Trump has been hostile to the intelligence community, openly hostile. Um, and I think that goes without debate. Now you can, you can have a debate or whether that's warranted or not warranted. That's not a debate I'm interested in having because again, I'm not here to, to support or denounce a candidate. I'm here to support or denounce things that candidates do, or excuse me, um, that presidents do on specific issues. I'm not here to, if I criticize Trump, which I am about to do here momentarily, doesn't mean I hate Trump or like Trump. It means I'm criticizing this particular action because I, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say this disclaimer throughout this podcast. Anytime I talk about politics, whether I criticize a Democratic president, Democratic senator, or Republican president, or Republican senator, it's not because I hate or like them. It has nothing to do with that. I'm going to go issue by issue because this is what we don't have enough of in the dialogue. Issue by issue, situation by situation. And I'm going to analyze it and give my opinion on that micro level because there's going to be some things that President Trump does that I like 
and there's going to be some things that I don't like. And that's with anyone. And that's the way it should be because we have none of that anymore. It's, I hate everything he does. I like everything he does. That's nonsense. That's not even the real world. So back to my point. John Brennan's security clearance was revoked. He's been highly critical of President Trump. If I was President Trump, the human being part of it, I understand that. This guy has been slamming you since he left, and you don't like it. And I don't blame you. But you are politicizing the intelligence community, and that's dangerous. If you look, since the clearance was announced that it was revoked, you've had CIA directors from both George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush denouncing this move. You've had people all over the intelligence committee denouncing this move. You have people, specifically the leader of the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, that requested that Trump revoke his credentials as well. This is not good. This is, in a world we live in, and, and Trump and other politicians are fond of saying, especially when they're running, what a dangerous world we live in. We have threats from around the world. We have ISIS. We have Russia. We have terrorism brewing in Africa. The geopolitical situation in regards to terrorism is at a high level. You have several terrorist attacks in Europe on a regular basis. Issues with, with that going on. And to revoke security clearance from a former director of the CIA just because he doesn't like you is nonsense. That's nonsense. And it's not helping our country. You don't have to like the guy, but he provides invaluable information. And again, polarization is rotting our democracy because guess what? Now, Donald Trump has set a bad precedent. So guess what's going to happen if we get a Democratic president down the road, which we will have one down the road, whether it's in four years or eight years. So what's going to happen with that particular president, whoever that may be? If some of the Trump administrations see, well, let's look, the CIA director now is Gina Haspel, first female CIA director. Not to say she would do this, but let's say Trump is a one-term president, Democratic president's elected. Gina Haspel leaves the role. She still has her security clearances, and then she openly criticizes the Democratic president that comes in because we're going to be whatever the complaint will be. We're going to be less secure than we were under Trump, whatever it is. Let's say she were to say that, and we'll be very loud and very vocal about it. So you've set the table, Donald Trump, for the Democratic president to go, I'm pulling your clearance, Gina Haspel. And it would be just as wrong. But guess what the what the Democratic president and the Democratic supporters of that president are going to say, well, Donald Trump did it. So if it's good enough for Donald Trump, it's good enough for us. And this is what the political discourse has devolved into. Well, they did it, so I'm going to do it. So it's literally like children. So if one sibling does something and gets away with it, then the other sibling tries to do it, and then they don't get away with it. They go, well, my brother and my sister got to do it and they didn't get in trouble. We've literally devolved to, well, they're going to do it, so we're going to do it too. So to me, that's really a wonderful way to have our politics. Well, he did it, so I can do it. That's ridiculous. Revoking security clearances for our intelligence people, there are very few people in the world that do what they do. Okay, those are big departments, CIA, FBI, NSA, anything involved in the security of the United States, intelligence gathering, 
large agencies with thousands and thousands of people, but in the grand scheme of the government, that's not a lot of people doing that stuff. There's a very few people, there's very few people in this country and in this world that do that work. And the more people we have a connection to, whether it's through security clearances or access or, or knowledge or experience, we need those people to always be available to us if they're willing to be available. Always from the, and John Brennan is a big name and people know who he is. So, and he's only one person understood, but it's not even about John Brennan or even Donald Trump. It's about the precedent, the dangerous precedent that that's, that that sets. Polarization is almost like with Supreme Court decisions where people, where precedents get set in positive or negative directions, depending on what you think the decision is. Polarization thrives on precedents. And polarization always thrives on bad precedents. There are bad precedents being set. And polarization just roots itself in that. And we already go to our corners and sit there. This just makes it worse. It's getting to the point now where we are so polarized that we are literally okay with being less secure and less safe because we're going to eliminate people who disagree with us. Because that's essentially what this is. John Brennan disagrees with the current administration, so the current administration revokes his security clearance. That's what we've come down to. We can't separate personal from the country. And these are two examples that I brought up. The Supreme Court, now this issue with the security clearances. And again, anyone who's listening to this podcast right now who is a Donald Trump supporter, please don't mistake my criticism of Donald Trump as a dislike of Donald Trump. I don't like or dislike him. What I do with every president, I am a registered independent. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. Any president, what I do is I wait for the entire body of work. Not that I don't comment on things along the way, but just like Obama and just like Trump, Trump's going to have a body of work of either four years or eight years. When those four years or eight years are done, believe me, my opinion on that president will be relatively clear because we'll have a body of work of what he's done right and what he's done wrong. But just because I criticize or praise doesn't mean I support or don't support. That's what this podcast is going to be about. So as you listen to me and every take that I have on politics, that's the position that I'm coming from. I'm looking to bring back actual discourse, issue by issue, decision by decision. Not every decision that a president makes is wrong or every decision that a president makes is right. That people that have that outlook on any president, I'm sorry, that's idiotic. And it's unrealistic. And that's not how any of us in the real world deal with things. We know we have people that we support or don't support, even people that we love that do things that we don't approve of. But we still love them and we still support them. And that goes to the same thing with the president. But that's not the world we live in now. We, we live in a world where no matter who's president, since we talked about Obama and Bush, from the second that Obama was elected, half the country was out. They were out. He's the worst thing ever. He's a danger to the country. They were out. But of course, Republicans will, won't say that now, but it's, but it's just the same thing. Half the country was out on President Obama, out. Donald Trump gets elected. The second he's elected, half the country is out. No matter what Trump does, good or bad, he's bad. 
And it goes the other way. No matter what Trump does, good or bad, the people that support him, support him through anything. And they've shown that. He's had a basically uh, a sustained number of approval rating for pretty much the entire time. I know it's bumped up a little bit. But the people that hate him will always hate him. The people that hate Obama will always hate Obama. I don't hate anybody. I look at what they do and judge their body of work. That's the position that I'm taking. So I know people listen to this podcast and they're going to make their own conclusions. They're, they're going to assume that I'm really on one side or the other or try to parse what I say and make that that way. Good luck because you're, you're not going to win because it's not there. And it's easy for me to say that because I know it's true. So as you hear my political podcast in the future, like I said, it won't be every episode because we do three different things. Know this with politics. If I criticize or praise a particular politician, believe me, it doesn't mean I like them or dislike them. I could praise them today and slam them tomorrow. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. And one more thing I want to get to before I do a wrap up here. Um, I want to tell you, uh, people out there that are listening, that I'm trying to still get uh, guests from the political realm, mainly candidates that are running to come on the show. Uh, obviously, I haven't been successful in doing that yet. I'm still attempting to do that. Um, I've made direct contact with uh, two specific campaigns. Um, I don't want to say who they are uh, because that, nothing has come of it yet, so I don't want to give the impression that something's imminent when it may not be. I'll continue to open those lines of dialogue. Obviously, it's going to be a challenge for me to do that, being a small podcast with not a huge listenership yet. So obviously, I'm sure they're going to look at what I do and, and decide you know, it may not be worth their time. And I don't take that personally. It is what it is. I knew that was always going to be a challenging aspect of doing a podcast with politics where I'm looking to interview people, but I'm going to continue to try and hopefully I'll have a breakthrough uh, at some point. So that's something I'm enjoying trying to do, uh, but I wanted to give an update there, but I will say this uh, for anyone um, that works for a political campaign, two things I'm going to ask one, or one thing I'm going to ask on one statement I'm going to make. One, if anyone's listening to this show anywhere in the country, it doesn't have to be in Florida where I'm based out of, if you have an inside track on a political campaign or you're working on a political campaign and your candidate that you're working for is willing to come on the podcast, please reach out to me. I'll be more than happy to interview them. I'm going to make a statement about my or my mission statement about interviews here in the next minute or two. So if you like my mission statement about what I'm going to be asking candidates that may come on the show, please reach out to them. And if they're willing to do it, have them, you know, reach out to me. You can either DM me on Twitter. My handle is at BendYourEarPod, or you can email the show. That's BendYourEarPodcast at gmail.com. I'll give those information out later in the show. But if you have access to a candidate that's running or is even currently in office that would be willing to talk to me on a podcast to do, you know, either a shorter or long form interview, please reach out to me either through Twitter or uh, email the show directly. So I would appreciate that if you that. Uh, I know my listeners may be the way I'll get interview subjects, so I'm putting the call out. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is if I am able to get interviews from political guests on the show, I'm going to be very clear here, and I can reference them to this episode so I don't have to repeat it. My two points of emphasis, this I will repeat anytime I broach the topic of politics. Today's show, polarization. The other, sh the other point, voter engagement. So there's a couple of things that I'm going to be looking for when I interview candidates. If a candidate agrees to come on my show, it's not going to be a bash session 
of the person they're running against if they happen to be running. I don't want to hear it. Frankly, it's not interesting. And also, they have every other TV, newspaper, Fox News, MSNBC. They have any other outlet that they want to get on where they'll allow or they'll they'll tolerate bashing of the other party. I'm not having it here because I don't want my show to contribute to the polarization. So if I see a candidate going down that road, I'm going to cut them off. I'm not going to have it on my show. I want them to tell me what they're going to do for their constituency, what their plans are, what they're going to do to make things better. I have no interest in the other candidate when I'm interviewing. If I'm interviewing candidate A, I have no interest about how candidate B is evil. Don't want to hear it. There's plenty. Everybody can hear that wherever they want. And if that's the kind of podcast you're looking for me for politics, you you might as well move on because that's not going to be what I'm going to do. So that's point number one. So I'm going to ask them what they can do. The second thing I'm going to ask them is about what are they going to do to engage the voters. Voter engagement to me, and again, this is where the voters, as I've said before, have to do the heavy lifting. But I am going to ask candidates, the lack of engagement is hurting our democratic process. I'm going to ask them what their thoughts are on engagement and what they think they can do to increase voter engagement in the process. So those are the two things for sure I'm going to ask them. There's going to be no tolerance of bashing other candidates. I'm not interested in it, and it's not interesting to me. I know it's interesting to a lot of other people. I have no interest in it because I have a higher purpose than that of, of trying to find out. Because if, if I can get candidates to agree to do the show, I want to get to the heart of what they're going to do or what they propose to do if elected to office. That's the only thing to me that's relevant and hopefully will be relevant to voters and to listeners of the show. So again... That's what I'm going to be looking for, and uh, I'm going to try to adhere to that. So if I ever do get a political guest and I don't adhere to the things I've just said now, call me out on it. If you see me even unintentionally feeding into polarization by what a candidate may say on my show, call me out on it. Email me. I want to be called out on that because I don't want this show to be that because it's not that, and that's not who I am as a person, so I don't want it to be that way as a show. All right, so that's going to be the show for today. I want to thank everyone for listening. I also want to thank everyone for uh, listening to my previous shows. Um, we're slowly building an audience, and I'm very proud of that, and I'm okay that it builds slowly. I've got more people listening to me today than I did when I started in June, and that's all that matters. So uh, I don't have target numbers or, you know, I'm trying to get as many people to listen as possible. So from week to week, that may change, and depending on the show, I know the nature of my show being... Uh, multiple topics that that'll be a challenge uh, some shows will do better than others and that's fine I'm good with that but I like the variety because it keeps me engaged and then hopefully doesn't keep the show from getting stale or repetitive so uh, I'm very appreciative uh, of anyone that's listening so again let me know your thoughts about this show or any other show um, the website to obtain episodes is www.letmebendyourear.com again you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, or CastBox. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel. That's at Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. I'm still trying to monkey around on what I'm going to do with, with YouTube. I've been posting my video minicasts when I do those. Uh, so I don't know if I maybe add a live component to it. Um, anytime I do live, I usually go to Facebook Live because my followers are there. Uh, I don't really have that many on YouTube, so I don't know. 
how effective going live on YouTube would be. But hey, I may try it as a lark one time instead of Facebook uh, to see if I can generate subscribers to the YouTube channel because I think that's probably uh, a better avenue to do that. So I'll definitely uh, make an effort in the future to do that. Please follow the show on Twitter. I've uh, just surpassed 450 followers, so that's pretty great. I am appreciate appreciate the growth on there. The handle is at BendYourEarPod. That's also the handle for Instagram, BendYourEarPod. Again, the email, if you have any questions, comments, um, suggestions, is BendYourEarPodcast at gmail.com. And again, if you listen to the show on iTunes specifically, please rate and review the show. Or if you don't review it, at least rate it. Uh, looking for five-star reviews. I have a couple of new reviews that I looked at this week. Um, so Victims and Villains actually reviewed my podcast, so I appreciate it. Thank you to them. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it. Rate the show and review it. And the reason uh, that if you hear any podcast, including mine, we really push that hard is because the reviews and rates of a show on iTunes pushes that show up on the search so if people are searching for this type of show, the more ratings and reviews that I get, the higher in the search results the show will go. And that's the way to exponentially increase listenership. So if you could do that, I would highly appreciate it. And it would be um, most appreciated if you could uh, rate and review the show. Again, I want to thank everybody for listening and hope you enjoyed today's show on politics. Uh, I'm glad I was finally able to delve into it a little bit. Hopefully you can see where I'm going to go here with the polarization and the voter engagement, but especially polarization. If you're out there and you're an active voter, try to do everything you can to combat polarization because I know it can be very frustrating. And uh, if you're on one side or the other, I would ask, just try to listen to the other side, honestly listen to it. You don't have to agree with it, but at least have an honest and open dialogue with people, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, maybe not coworkers, politics is not usually good at work, but people that you trust that maybe don't agree with you politically, you know, try to foster that dialogue where you'll find, I think that you have a lot more in common than you do not in common. So try to do that. So again, thanks for listening to today's show. I hope everybody has a great week. Take care.